as we look at Leviticus chapter 18 tonight, we come across a passage that I've been thinking about for six months. Because this is a passage of the Bible that has made many people turn off to Christianity, uh, reject the Bible. And so I want to begin this morning, or this evening rather, uh, letting you know that uh, I lost my voice because I've been speaking at funerals and all kinds of things this week. Um, but this is a very important passage. And I want to start by helping you understand what Leviticus is in general. So when we get to some of these tough passages, it'll maybe help be a little more palatable. First of all, realize that when you're reading Leviticus, you're reading somebody else's contract, something they willingly entered into. Reminds me of my, uh, my family. We, we didn't grow up in uh, HOAs, and my brother moved to Nashville, and he was in the first HOA. And I remember my dad moving him in down in Nashville, and as he was moving into his uh, place, my dad's looking over the rule of the covenants. Like, you've got to do this, and you can't have this, and you can't do this, and the grass has got to be this long and not this long, and the bushes can't be this. And my dad is like, I would never live here. And my brother's like, no, no, we chose to live here because of the benefits. The home value, we like the idea that, um, that we have pools in the neighborhood, we're going to keep up, these going to be a great investment. Um, and so what's interesting is my dad got to see my brother willingly choose to be into a, in a covenant, Yet at the same time, he said, that doesn't affect me. You know, your covenant isn't something I have to live by. I think that's helpful to understand because the book of Leviticus is not something that we impose on other people. This is something that people willingly chose to be part of. It's a contract willingly entered by the people of God because they said, God, we want to be in a special relationship with you. We want the benefits that you've offered. We understand the consequences, and we're willingly choosing to sign on the bottom line. It says that back in Exodus. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, God says, and keep my covenant, you're going to be a special treasure to me above all people. The earth's all mine, but you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Moses comes to them and says, what do you think? Do you want to be part of this covenant? Certain behaviors we're going to avoid. There's going to be certain uh, actions we want to uh, be, um, prioritize and certain things we want to not be part of our lifestyle. And they sign on the dotted line. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So notice, this is not a contract that's imposed on people who don't want it. People willingly choose to enter this contract of the book of Leviticus. Secondly, it's helpful to understand is that Leviticus is not a contract to apply to those who aren't willingly in the community. God does not tell the people of God to take the Torah and to go and bash the Egyptians over the head with it. Egyptians should be acting like this. Or, or go to the Canaanites. You should be acting like this. No. This is a contract between people and God of how I want to choose to live to represent my God. And this particular chapter of the Bible has been used to bash people over the head who don't call themselves God followers. They don't call themselves Christ followers. And in one sense, it doesn't even apply to them. There may be some universal truths that certainly could be true to all people of all times, but in general, we're reading somebody else's contract willingly entered here. At no time does God tell the people of God to apply this to the Egyptians or to apply this to the Canaanites. In the New Testament, nowhere do they say, hey, go and, and, and impose this upon Rome. Instead, I want you to live a life so distinctly according to this contract, according to this new way, that people are drawn to this life. They're drawn to your lifestyle. They're drawn to the way you're living. Think of it this way. If you have friends who are Hindu, you'll know that they have a contract with their God. And in the Hindu religion, they have a contract with karma. And so they believe that evil is punished through karma and rewarded through karma. 
And so they believe in reincarnation. So part of the contract they make with their God or their deities is that they don't eat meat. Why? Because of reincarnation. You might be eating your grandmother or your aunt because the energies from that person get put into somebody else. You can befriend somebody with, with Hindu uh, who says Hinduism. You can appreciate it. You can study it. But in one sense, you're not too bothered by it, right? Because that's their contract. And you might get a little offended if you're a meat eater and they start to uh, impose their contract on you. Or maybe your friends who are Muslim. And you'll probably know that the Quran is pretty clear that at no time should you drink alcohol ever, ever, ever. So no one at no time in any place. And that's a contract the Muslims make between themselves and Allah. Now, you can understand that, you can study that, but in one sense it doesn't apply to you. It, it's not anything you need to worry about or be bothered by. In fact, you would be bothered if they took their contract and tried to impose it upon you. So in the same way as we look at Leviticus 18, realize this is a contract God sets out to say, if you willingly want to be part of a, a distinct lifestyle and living a new kind of life that's going to be very different from the culture, then I want you to willingly sign the dotted line. And that's why he's going to summarize all of chapter 18 when he gets to the first verse of 19. He's going to say it this way. Let me go back here. So notice how he says it here in Leviticus 18. You, therefore, shall keep my statutes and my judgments. You shall commit any of these abominations. Don't commit any of these abominations. Who's he talking to? The people who are Hebrews, who have willingly chosen to be in the covenant, and any stranger. These were Egyptians or Canaanites who said, I, I want to be part of this community. And they literally joined the ranks or converted in to be part of this contract. So you could convert in, but it wasn't imposed on people who didn't choose to be part of the community. Which is why he summarizes the big idea here at the beginning of chapter 19. He says, I want my people to be holy as I am holy. The word holy means to be set apart. Set apart how you think. Set apart how you live. Set apart your behaviors and your understanding of different concepts. Verse 19, chapter 19, he says, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel. Say to them, I want you to be holy, set apart, distinct, living differently, because the Lord your God is holy. And notice he's going to make this distinction between the culture they left in Egypt and the culture they're entering in Canaan. He mentions them both by name. I'll dig more into this next week or two weeks from now. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, don't do that. I don't want you to imitate the Egyptian cultures you came away from their gods. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where you're going, where I'm bringing you, don't do what they do either. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. So again, he doesn't say impose this on the Egyptians or impose this on the Canaanites. He says in contrast to their culture, in contrast to their values, in contrast to how they think about certain subjects and certain behaviors, I want you to act distinctly, wholly different. For where I'm bringing you, you shall not walk in their ordinances. Instead, I want you to observe my judgments, keep my ordinances, to walk in them. For I am Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And again, this is a contract between God and the Hebrew nation in this theocracy that was um, Moses' writing. So, how do we do that? How do we act holy? He's going to lay out all kinds of details, some of which we're going to say, oh my goodness, that has made the whole world a better place. Some of which are going to be incredibly countercultural in this particular time in history that we're living in today. But there are two ways that we can live holy. And my hope is that we could 
understand this verse in a couple ways. One, that we could know what it looks like to live set apart for God to honor Him and to please Him. Number two, that we would stop using the Bible to badger other people who haven't entered in the contract, but instead live a life so distinct that we woo people into a relationship with God. So let's begin. The first way that we live holy is actually a question, and it's a pretty convicting one. The question is this, to be holy, am I imitating God or am I imitating the culture? See, most of the temptations, most of the conversations that are happening here in 2017 have been happening all through history. The things just resurface themselves through different cultures. And when you look at how you think about life, conflict, money, sex, are we imitating God or are we imitating the culture? Josephus was a historian. He said when the Christians began to come on the scene after Jesus' resurrection, the Roman Empire had a very distinct view of sex and a very distinct view of money. When it came to money, Josephus says, no one gave anything to anybody. Incredibly self-centered, incredibly selfish culture. Yet when it came to sexuality, they would sleep with anyone, anywhere, at any time. And that was uh, parties that was in the military, that was used as training, whether it was homosexuality or heterosexuality or pedophilia or bestiality, was, so everything goes. And so Josephus said when the Christians came, they came with a brand new idea that God was faithful to them as a spouse. And so they wanted to be faithful before they were married to their future spouse God had for them because just as God made a covenant with them before he got intimate, he wanted us to be in a relationship. So we got, uh, made a covenant with the people we loved before we get intimate. And it really changed how they thought about premarital sex. And once you were married, you didn't have multiple mistresses. You really believed in this idea of God bringing a man and a woman together and even in our differences to commit to loving each other, learning how to be generous to one another, learning how to become one together. And this was so distinct in the Roman Empire because it was very different from the polygamy they had, very different from the affairs they had, very different from the mistress they had. And Josephus said the, the Christian followers, the Jesus followers, lived so distinctly because they were so generous with their money and so stingy with their bodies in a sense of only giving to their spouse. And a lot of this comes out of the principles here in Leviticus 18. So the first one, real easy to swallow. Family is sacred. What he's going to do is he's going to define what is the essential family unit. And what he's going to do is lay out some precautions, unlike Egypt and Canaan, about not committing incest. Why does he have to go into that? Because it was happening in Egypt and Canaan. Who you could marry. So where are the parameters by which we think about who you can and cannot marry? He sort of lays a groundwork for not marrying your daughter or your mother or your aunt or your... And you're thinking, well, isn't that common sense? It wasn't at the time. Many of the things we think of common sense today are because God defines here in Leviticus what it means to have family being sacred. I'll give you the highlights here, and then I'll show it to you in a visual. None of you shall approach anyone to have covenant marriage with them and that's such relationships who's kin with you. Don't go marry your father if he gets widowed from your mother. Don't go uh, uh, marry your mother. Don't marry your sister. Not your daughter. Not your daughter's daughter. Not your father's sister. Not your father's brother, uh, for she is your aunt. And you shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law or your brother's wife or the near of kin to him. Uh, nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister uh, to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. Here's basically what he said in nine verses. <laughs> This is essentially the family unit. And if there's widowing going on, I don't want you to marry 
someone who's in the family unit. I want you to see family as sacred. Because in Egypt, women were oppressed through incest. They were oppressed through, through um, treated just like a commodity. And God says, I want my community to see family as sacred, to see women as sacred, to see sexuality as sacred. I want them to live so distinctly that there's a type of purity and a faithfulness and a, uh, a commitment to a new type of, of not just morality for morality's sake, but a beauty of holiness. And I want families to know they're protected. The fathers are to protect daughters, not exploit them. Protect your grandchildren, not exploit them. And I want you to understand the family unit is precious. It's sacred before God. God designed marriage between a man and a woman and for them to create community in such a way that would bless the world. So he sort of lays that out. And then he goes on. He said, now, the second thing, this one's a little weird. He says, I want you to know blood is sacred. Uh, And he says, blood is sacred because if you remember from the last couple weeks, they would use blood to purify things. But this is very different from the Egyptians. So um, he says in verse 19, You shall not approach a woman, your, your wife is the implication, to uncover her nakedness as long as she's in her, her customary impurity. Now why does he say that? Why does he go into that? He's not saying it's immoral to do this. He's saying you're ritually impure. And I think the reason he's trying to keep um, the Jewish people from getting involved in blood, especially menstrual blood, is because, believe it or not, it's like, why do you have to mention this stuff? Because back in Egypt, they used menstrual blood to be part of incantations to uh, summon demonic forces. He's like, I don't want you to have anything to do with that. You're like, really? That was commonplace in Egypt. Then he goes on and says, I want you to know that family and children are sacred. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife. Now, this phrase is a little differently here of lying carnally. Besides just not you know, having an affair with your neighbor's wife, I want you to honor their marriage. I want you to honor their family. But the word here, lie carnally, is different from just seeing uncovering nakedness. It means to impregnate. Besides just not having an extramarital affair, when you impregnate another woman, you, you've destroyed a family. You've created awkwardness. You brought chaos into that family. Who's my mom? Who's my dad? And I, I don't want my people to do that. I want you to honor children by protecting them in the context of your own family. And he goes on. It's really weird that he connects these two thoughts. He says in verse 21, And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your God, for I am the Lord. So who's Moloch and why is he talking about it? Moloch was a bronze god. He had several names throughout history, Baal, Moloch. And he was literally made out of bronze, and so they would put a bonfire underneath him, and he'd heat up. And he would get so hot that part of the sacrificial system to the gods in Canaan, as well as Egypt had a different name for this, but in Moloch, is you would take your children, your two-year-old, your three-year-old, alive and you're holding them, or your newborn, and you would place them in the hands of Moloch, literally burning the children alive. And you would think you were doing God's will, satisfying the gods. And God said, I want my people to love life and to love children. And if you look through history, you see how almost every adoption clinic traces back to Christian roots or Jewish roots. This idea of the Romans would take children and throw them out and they would die from exposure or, or eaten by dogs was called infanticide. You think of Pharaoh killing off all the children and throwing them into the Nile or Herod killing all the two-year-olds or younger. Think our modern-day uh, abortion. Satan has had a strategy that he wants to kill and destroy. But God says, I want you to love people. I want you to see them made in my image and I want you to honor them. Black, white, rich, poor, young or old. I don't want you to offer your children to Moloch. To which now maybe we get a little self-righteous. Well, thank goodness I'm not tempted with any of these things they've mentioned. I would never do this. I would never sacrifice that. Here's why the Bible is so helpful in extracting self-righteousness from us. 
Though you and I might say to ourselves, I've never put a child in the hands of Moloch. Don't we all stand a little convicted when we say, if that's just an idol, how often have we made our own ego our idol? We've sacrificed our children to our own ego. How many times have I been incredibly impatient, saying very hurtful words to my kids, all because I wanted to be in a hurry or I want to get my job done? How many of us have forced our kids or our, our, our wives to move from, from place to place to, to advance our career goal without really weighing their opinion? How many times have I said things that did not bless or build up my kids because I was in the moment needing my rights or my job done? In one sense, though, we may feel like we're a long way away from sacrificing our children to the God of Moloch. The principle is much bigger than that. What does it mean for all of us to honor God? And by honoring God, honor the trust, people, the family God's given to us, our marriage, our kids, our grandchildren. And not sacrificing on the altar of ego, the altar of of, uh, fame, or even the altar of reputation. He goes from there and he says, I want to tell you something else is is pretty sacred to me, and sexual intimacy is pretty sacred to me. He says, "Um, you shall not lie with a man uh, as with a woman. It's an abomination. And here again he's talking about homosexuality and how that was very common both in the the Egyptian culture. It's going to be very common in the the Canaanite culture. He said, I don't want my people to be that. I want you to willingly commit to a different type of of commitment to uh, the, the way I've designed you from the created order. Nor shall you mate. He's like, why is he mentioning this? Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It's a perversion. So again, now you're like, you know, why in the world is he bringing this stuff up? Well, let's go back to a little Egyptian mythology here. Do you remember the Egyptian gods? Do you remember what they look like? They're half man, half animal. We got some alligators up here. We got some goats up here. We got some ostriches up here. All kinds of weird stuff. In the Egyptian culture, part of the worship experience was you engaging with the gods. So when you engage with the gods, you very often were engaged in both uh, human beings uh, with animals. And so God says, I I don't want that to be part of my community. I I want oneness and sexual intimacy to be sacred between a man and a woman. And I want that to be something that my people live distinctively. Not bash everybody else over the head with it, but to live distinctively in a way that people are drawn to faithfulness. They're drawn to this kind of harmony and this kind of relationship. Now, when you read the Bible, it's kind of interesting because God only writes stuff because people were struggling with it, right? So he's writing this about this stuff in the bestiality part because there was culture struggling with it. I came across a, a list of uh, warnings on products. And, you know, somebody had to put a warning on a product. Why? Because somebody tried it, right? And it had to be explained. I'll give you a few examples. Here's one. This is on a blanket in Taiwan. Not to be used as protection from a tornado. Now, why would you have to put on your blanket not to be used for protection from a tornado, except that what? It was probably a lawsuit 10 years ago where somebody was out in a tornado with their blanket and went, this thing doesn't work. So somebody, some lawyer had to say, we've got to put this on here. Here's another one. In some countries, there's a, on the bottom of Coke bottles, it says, open the other end. Man, I can't get through the glass. Right? Somebody had to write this down because somebody struggled with this. Here's another one. On a Sears hair dryer, do not use while sleeping. Because how many of us haven't been tempted? Oh, honey, I'm thinking about heading to bed. Well, you know what? Right before I do, I think I'll blow dry my hair. 
burn the house down, right? Somebody tried this, which is why there has to be somebody giving a, 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 a reason why or a, um, a commandment why you shouldn't do it. Here's one last one. On a bar of soap, directions, use like regular soap. What's the other option? Don't ask, I guess. And here's the point. What seems like obscure, ridiculous, like where's God coming up with this stuff, were very distinct things that he was trying to show how the culture he was creating was different from the Egyptians and different from the Canaanites because he wanted his people to enter this willing contract to live in a very different way. Now, the question that we come back to is, am I imitating God or imitating the culture? And this is where Jesus shows up and says he not only fulfills the law, he expands it. So we might look at that particular list and say, well, thank goodness I've never found my cat attractive. I think I'm doing fine. Or thank goodness I've never found my dog attractive. I think I'm doing fine. But Jesus expands this to show us that there's something wrong in all of our hearts. And this, again, extracts self-righteousness and shows that we're all equally in need of God's grace. For Jesus shows up and says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, who even looks at a woman with lust in her heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You're like, wow. Just because I didn't check the adultery box or the I impregnated my, my neighbor's wife box, even if I lusted in my heart, I'm not imitating the kind of heart change that God wants in my culture. Suddenly we're all like, wow, I'm, I'm in need of grace. I'm in need of forgiveness. I'm in need of God's leadership. If you say, well, I'm not really, you know, I can see, thank goodness you're telling all the men this, Chad, because it's not something I struggle with, if that's something you struggle with. But lust has a lot of forms. Lusting after power. Lusting after approval. Lusting after control. Lusting after being seen a certain way by certain people. There's so many different forms of lust. And the Bible takes this idea from Leviticus and doesn't say it's just a Levitical idea. He actually expands upon the list, even mentioning a few of the things from Leviticus and 1 Corinthians, and includes something pretty amazing in here that I think makes us all stand condemned in need of grace. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? He's talking about if you want the full kingdom of God flowing through you, this isn't like getting to heaven. If you want the full kingdom of God flowing through you, there's some things that, that keep the full kingdom of God from flowing through you. And look at how he expands the list. Sure, it includes fornication, premarital sex, and idolatry, and adultery, uh, extramarital sex, and homosexuality, and sodomites. And it also includes stealing. It also includes coveting and drunkenness, being controlled by something besides God. No revilers or extortionists will inherit the kingdom of God. And again, the full kingdom of God isn't being inherited or, or being manifest in your life. And look at what he includes in that list. Covetousness and lying. He says, I want you to understand, New Testament now, you can be washed of any of that. Anyone can be forgiven of anything, and that's the beauty of our God. And just because you don't struggle with a particular uh, area that the Bible mentions, I bet you struggle with another one. That's why it brings so much humility into your life. And as we come so humbly to it, God says, I want you to know that you can be washed of anything. And then I want you to, to set your eyes on living life as a washed person. To imitate me, say, God, wash me so clean. I don't totally understand it. I don't even always agree with what God wants me to do or not do, but I'm going to try and walk as a washed person in the world today. Folks will often ask me, they'll say, Chad, well, I've heard that you know, something on your list here is, is the unforgivable sin. What is the unforgivable sin? 
I'll pull people aside. I'll say, I'll tell you what the unforgivable sin usually is. That's what everybody has. They, they, they create some arbitrary list of what are the bad sins or the not-so-bad sins, and the unforgivable one is something you don't struggle with. And you might say, well, I don't struggle with, 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 with impregnating my, uh, my neighbor's wife, so that's unforgivable. Those are the bad people. But the Bible put in the same list, covetousness. Let me show you how Paul does it from Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, Paul makes a startling statement. So I want you to imagine, if you're a Monty Python fan, you're coming to the bridge. And if you remember the scene, they say you cannot cross the bridge unless you ask, answer three difficult questions. And so they're all nervous. How do you get across the bridge? And so the first night comes up, and, and the, uh, the bridge keeper says, What is your favorite color? Green. What is your name? Sir Lancelot. All right, you can go. Do, 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 do. That was it. That was easy. Next guy's like, well, I could pass that test. So he runs up to the bridge and he says, all right, you ask me the questions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go, what is your name? Sir Lancelot, whatever his name was. Second question, what is the air velocity of a European swallow? I don't know. Ah, and he flies off. So many of us think that if we're going to cross the bridge into God's kingdom, oh, yeah, thank goodness I don't struggle with the things on the list that came from Leviticus, so we're going to do fine. And Paul says something similar. He says, when it comes to lust, look what it says in, in, in King James. Nay, I had not known lust. I had not known sin, for I had not known lust. This is in the Bible. Paul saying he has not ever known lust. I don't struggle with lust. I don't struggle with premarital sex or extramarital sex. As a Pharisee, I train my brain in such a way I don't struggle with that. Well, good for you, Paul. And Paul says, I was going to come up to the bridge, and I didn't struggle with the sins of lust. And so it would be real easy. Ask me three questions, and I'll cross right over. What's my name? Paul. What's your favorite color? Green. Do you struggle with lust? No. I'm walking into heaven. But then Paul says, though I didn't struggle with that law, he goes on later in the chapter, he says, though I had not known lust, I would not have known covetousness Unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Oh, I'm going to be asked a question about have I ever coveted somebody else's car, somebody else's house, somebody else's job, somebody else's position. He says, and though I was doing fine on the lust test, when coveting came, sin deceived me and covetousness slew me. Oh, my goodness. Wah! I, was, I couldn't pass that test at all. I did horrible at that. Think of what covetousness really is. Lusting after somebody else's job, car, it's a lack of contentment. That again is why the Bible says if we're going to live as distinct people, it doesn't mean taking one particular verse that you're good at and saying, and, and feeling self righteous. It's looking at the whole law of God and saying, God, I want to live distinctly and humbly before you. I want to be the same person that you tell me not to complain or grumble. I want to be the same person who, who's trying to live in such a way that I live with gratitude and blessing toward other people. That's why the Bible properly understood drives us to humility and it drives us to say, I want to live holy as you are holy, but not from a place of self-righteousness. Because though you may not struggle with one sin, I bet you struggle with another. I came across a tool years ago that I found very helpful. It goes along with last week's message and this point here, which is that you know many of us living in the culture we live in that's so sex-crazed, you know, the temptation, or we know maybe our friends have been tempted or have gone into an affair. 
And for many times when it comes to an affair, what happens is that you know, folks say, well, you know, I would never do that, I would never do that, and this, you know, five years later they do that. How does it happen? I came across this tool from a book called The Temptations Men Face. could have been called Temptations People Face. And it talks about the stages to an affair. And how do you know if your heart's beginning to lust or lean away from God's holiness? He says, stage one, when you move from trying to make your marriage your priority, trying to engage in your wife and your husband, understand their unique needs, adapt to them, instead of pursuing God's ideal, how do I become a soulmate to the woman or the man I've been given? We, we, we step off, we just take one small little step off, and we're ready. First stage to an affair is readiness. I'm leaning away from my marriage. It's just too hard. He's too crazy. She's too selfish. He's too needy. You haven't even met anybody, but you've already been leaning away from the holiness of making your marriage a priority. The next stage is alertness. You notice somebody. Nothing romantic going on. You just notice somebody whose strengths are different from your spouse's strengths, and you start to compare them in your mind. Man, I wish my wife could. I wish my husband didn't. Why can't he like and you become alerted and you begin to compare. That's what always happens. That's why it's a fantasy. You compare that person's strengths to your spouse's weaknesses. <laughs> and they increasingly are failing because you're constantly comparing someone else's strengths to their weaknesses. And, and there's an alertness. Then what happens, stage three, there's an innocent meeting. You, you meet after a soccer game, after a tennis match. Maybe it's after a business meeting. And just afterwards, you, you just have a quick connection. Some even thinking about it. But it's innocent. There's nothing going on. Just innocent meeting. And then the next stage goes on where you have an intentional meeting. You intentionally stay after the soccer game to say, hey, I really enjoyed the way your son played such and such. Oh, your daughter really did great today. Or after the business meeting, hey, sit and talk. What do you think about what the boss said today? You're intentionally creating space to meet with this person. Now, there's no touch. There's no romance. But what? you're four steps down the road to an affair. Stage goes from there to public lingering. After that meeting, you have a tendency to linger on. After that the sporting event, you have a tendency to linger a little bit. And, and suddenly you notice that the two of you are talking when everybody else is gone. Nobody else has left the building. Everybody else has got back in their car. Your kids are pulling. Come on, Mom. Come on, Dad. Let's go. Why are you still talking to this person? Public lingering. Then it moves to private lingering. Hey, you know, why don't we, uh, why don't we uh, work on this project together? And you find a way to purposely isolate yourself. It's got a purpose. Hey, why don't we work on that project together? Let's grab dinner together, just you and me tonight. We'll work on that project so we can get it together for the whole team. It's purposeful, business-related. It's purposeful. Hey, let's put something together with your, for your son's birthday party. I'm really good at putting hospitality together. And in that purposeful meeting, you then take another step, which is, you know, we ought to do this again sometime. And now, not for a purpose of a business meeting, just because you're starting to enjoy the person's company. You really get me like no one else does. And now the, the ties of an emotional affair are beginning. And again, there's been no touch yet, right? But no touch. We move from that into per personal isolating. Now, personally isolate, you're having that meeting where we really need to do this more often. It's not a purpose for business or otherwise. And then affectionate embracing after that lunch, after that dinner, after that game. Oh, it's so great to see you. Oh, you're such a good dad. You're such a good wife. Oh, you're such a good coach. And then that purposeful embracing, affection embracing, leads to passion embracing. And then you end up in an unhappy ending we talked about. And for many of us, we live our lives saying, how close can I get to temptation financially? How, how close can I get to temptation relationally? How far can I go and not sin? Here's the problem. If you always ask that question, you're always going to be on the edge. 
And the chance of falling off the edge is so much higher when you train your conscience to say, living holy means living as close to temptation as I can. Wouldn't it be wiser to say, I like to train my conscience to get nervous, not at stage 10 or 11. I like my conscience to be concerned or have an inner spidey sense that begins to alert me when I'm at stage one. Right? I'm leaning away from my marriage. And God wants me to live holy by leaning into my marriage. I'm starting to notice somebody and compare their strengths to my spouse's strengths or weaknesses. Man, I'm leaning away from marriage. God, help me to live more holy. Help me to re-engage in my marriage. Help me to re-engage in purity. That's what I want in my life. And I would encourage you too, to live as a holy person, to live as holy people. It means that you and I need to say we need to lean into this. And that's why the, the back half of Leviticus 18 is really helpful in giving us two big principles for doing this. How do you do this? How can we be holy? Well, first we ask ourselves, am I imitating God or the culture? Number two, you keep your distance from temptation, whether it's financial ruin, whether it's ego, whether it's anger, or whether it's lust. You keep your distance from temptation by staying close to righteousness. Be holy as I am holy. Don't say, how close can I get to temptation without falling in? Say, how close can I stay to God to be right with Him? To know His thoughts on this matter. There's two principles he gives us. Number one, we need to see temptation not as something enticing that we need to get close to, but we need to see it as defilement. Verse 24, he says, Do not defile yourself with any of these things all things he's been mentioning. For by all these, the nations of Egypt and Canaan were defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore, I'm going to visit the punishment of its iniquity or sins upon it. And the land is vomiting out its inhabitants. Now, the word temptation or defile literally means to desecrate or trample. What if we saw not temptation as boys being boys, pornography as well, just part of the natural process. What if we saw that as defilement? And if I engage in this, I'm defiling on how God's view women. I'm defiling on innocence. I'm defiling on faithfulness. If I start an emotional affair, I'm beginning to trample on God's desire for me to figure out how to engage with my spouse. What if when I blow up in anger, I see this as defilement, that I chose to engage in my own anger and my own patience instead of building in and trusting God to give me more self-control here? I think many times I don't see temptation as defilement. I see it as God sort of holding out the good stuff. I guess I've got to be a Christian. I guess I've got to follow the holiness route. Boring. And so then I want to get close to the good stuff. And, and how close can I get to the good stuff and God still accepts me? How close can I get without, without him getting mad at me? Versus seeing that God is the good stuff. Faithfulness and joy and peace and power and courage, that's the good stuff. And if, how do you stay away from temptation? I want to get close to the good stuff. Stay close to God and live according to and live out the holiness He has for me. I told you one of the, the disciplines, and I certainly give in to temptation often, but one of the disciplines I've tried to develop over the last couple of years is I, I don't want to be somebody's sad story. The husband who used to, the dad who used to, the pastor who used to, trust God, be faithful, love his wife. I don't want to be a sad story. And I know everything that's in someone who is a sad story is in me. I'm just as temptable as anyone else. So I've tried to train my brain over the years to, to get nervous at the early stages of temptation. I was talking to a couple. They were going through an affair. And I was doing the initial consultation with the two of them to hand them over to a counselor. And in my second conversation with the wife, 
He says, I'm really enjoying this. You seem to really understand. You're a great listener. You know, we, we've been friends for a while before this circumstance came up. I really would love this conversation between you and me, not to be counselor, counselee, or pastor, uh, attender of the church. I'd like it to be two ways. That you, you feel like you could share with me the same way I'm sharing with you. Now, was there anything inappropriate by request? No. Did she mean anything by it? No. She genuinely was trying to appreciate me and appreciate the, the counsel I was giving her. Meanwhile, all my alarm bells are going off. we got spidey sense galore. Wham, 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 wham. Not because it was inappropriate, because I just saw that as the pathway to something appropriate. And, and again, this was a friend of mine, and I had a very uh, honest, a little awkward conversation. I said, I appreciate that. I appreciate the encouragement. I appreciate the, 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 the way you're, this has been helpful for you. But I don't share things about my personal life with women who are not my wife. Because I just know if I do, uh, it, just won't be, it won't be healthy. It, it, and one of the ways I honor my wife, one of the ways I honor my job, one of the ways I honor God is that uh, I find that there's really appropriate places I want to steer you to some people who can get you some help, but that's just not the kind of relationship we can have. If you remember a couple of months ago, um, Vice President Pence got just slammed because he had a public policy that he didn't meet with women without his wife present. You're like, oh, I can't believe that. Well, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, wouldn't all of our politicians be in a better place if they had a policy like that? <laughs> right? I mean, it's just it's a way of saying, honey, I want you to know in this sex-crazed culture where with power and money I can have access to anything, I want you to know that you're a priority. And I want you to know I'm going to put some things in place that even if I'm not tempted, although I think all of us should admit that we're temptable, even if I'm not tempted, what does it mean to live blameless and above reproach? I want to be above reproach. I want to know that when I'm interacting with people, I'm doing it because I'm honoring them and I'm caring about them. I think that's what God's calling us to because when you hear that, you start saying, well, I, I want that. You don't get badgered by the Bible. You get wooed by it. How many of us wouldn't want to be in, in, in marriages and families and communities where, where men and women are esteemed, where, where oneness and marriage is, is something that even when, when you marry someone who's different from you, which is always the case, and, and you learn how to adapt, instead of saying trying to find your new soulmate, I want to become the soulmate that God wants me to be and wants me to adapt into. It's powerfully attractive when we live holy as God is holy. It draws people to it. But it starts with we see temptation as what it is. It's defiling where it's trampling on the purity and the oneness and the beauty of what God's made for us. The second thing he mentions here is that you see temptation is defilement. And two, you keep close is the best way to keep away. Keeping close to God is the best way to keep away from temptation. So don't focus on not being tempted. Then what are you doing? All day long you're thinking about temptation. It's like this. If I told you right now, I would just spend the whole week not thinking about um, your favorite dessert. So mine was a cookie monster from Luminaldi's in Chicago. So all week long, I'm going to write down, put on a little piece, piece of paper all over my car, all over my house, don't think about the cookie monster from Luminaldi's. I get in my car, big note, don't think about Luminaldi's cookie monster. Come home, it's on my mirror, don't think about it. What am I doing all day long? All I'm thinking about is the cookie monster from Luminaldi's, right? Focusing on not doing something bad isn't going to solve this. The way you keep away from temptation is keeping close to righteousness. How can I live pure? How can I live faithful? How can I engage with my spouse the way God engaged with me as his spouse? How can I be patient the way God was patient with me? How can I be compassionate the way God was compassionate with me? I want to stay close to God. Look at how he notes this twice in this chapter. He uses the word keep. Therefore, if you want to avoid all that stuff that we talked about, keep my statutes. 
And look at the emphasis on my, the God you love, the God you've known, the one who got you out of Egypt, the one who delivered you from all those, those crazy gods. Keep my judgments. And then if you keep close to me, you'll not commit any of the temptation. The best way to, to keep away from that is to stay close to me. It says again, verse 30, Therefore you shall keep my ordinances so that you do not commit any of the abominable customs. How do you keep from abominable customs? You keep my ordinance. You stay away from temptation by staying close to the Father. And then he goes in, he says, now, this isn't about some arbitrary list of rules and nonsense. This really comes back to the character of your God. I am the Lord your God. And I want you to pursue goodness because I am good. I want you to pursue faithfulness because I am faithful. I want you to pursue patience because I'm the very source of patience. Christians and God followers aren't against something. We're for something. We're for living out the kind of character qualities of our God. A God who's loving and courageous and patient and kind and compassionate. And the more you hang around with God, you pick up what I've mentioned before called his communicable attributes. And so what happens is like a communicable disease. You get near somebody who's sick and you pick up their, their disease. It's communicable. It spreads. There are certain aspects of God that are communicable. You hang out with God. You get close to God. You're reading your Bible daily. You're praying to God. You're, you're pouring your heart out to God. And as you begin to develop that relationship, you catch some of his communicable attributes. Now, just so you know, you're never going to catch his omniscience. You're never going to be all-knowing. You're never going to catch his omnipotence. You're never going to you know, be all-powerful. You're never going to catch his uh, uh, omnipresence. You're never going to be all-present. Those are not communicable. But many of them are. You hang out with God long enough, and you know what you catch? His kindness. His forgiveness. His courage. His wisdom. And if you want to develop the ability to stay away from temptation, get close to God. He becomes my God. And you say, I want more of this in my life. I want more of this in my marriage. I want more of this in my personal life than I am the Lord your God. Unless you think this is just an Old Testament concept, this all gets articulated in the New Testament. Let me show you how he does it in conclusion here. So remember, we just finished chapter 18. We get to the first verse of 19, and he summarizes what everything was about. So don't get lost in all the different pieces. Here was the main thing you're supposed to get at chapter 18. Be holy. Live distinctively amongst the Egyptians and the Canaanites as God is holy. Don't impose this upon them, but willingly sign on the dotted line here that you want to be part of a community that honors God's view of life and marriage and children. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now look at how this gets articulated in the New Testament. I think it's a key takeaway for us. Peter shows up and says, Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind. And it's a, it's a battle metaphor, actually. He's saying, when you, when you gird up your loins, you are going into battle, getting ready to fight. He's saying, if you want to understand how to live distinctively in a culture that is counter to almost everything God has, you need to realize you're going into battle. So gird up the loins of your mind. I need to think God's thoughts, not the cultural thoughts. I've got to ask myself, am I imitating God here or imitating the culture here? You've got to engage in that process. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Be humble. Be ready for it. Understand that this is a battle going on. And, look at this, before he tells us to be holy, rest. Rest your hope fully upon the grace of God. That's why I mentioned, whether it's covetousness or lust, 
the grace of God is every one of us here needs forgiveness for something. And there isn't some arbitrary list of some are worse than others. We're all equally in need of God. It's grace and it's humility. Therefore, it extracts self-righteousness. And more than that, instead of living for God being an arbitrary list of rules, when you understand the grace of God, He loved you, He died for you, He forgave you, He pursued you. When you rest, when the foundation or platform for your, for, your, for your Christian living is the grace of God, what He's done for you, what He's given you, how much He wants you, how much He's pursued you, when that becomes your engine, when that becomes the focal point of where you begin, the starting block, you say, in light of what God's done for me, in light of what He's forgiven me, I want to gird up my loins, I want to... Look at what I'm thinking about, and I want to go into battle so that, and here's, here's Leviticus reiterated, I can be holy in all of my conduct. Because it's written, he's grabbing this from Leviticus, be holy, for I am holy. So this is not some Old Testament idea that was done away with in the law. God wants us to be holy, to be set apart, to live distinctively. In, in, in what kind of conduct? All your conduct. What would it look like this week if you and I pursued holiness in all of our conduct? How, God, would you want me to handle this conflict with my staff member, with my spouse? God, I need your thoughts. What does holiness look like in this situation as I'm trying to wrestle with with the role of grace and truth in dealing with this issue? God, I want your thoughts. I want to gird up my mind. How do you think about money? Oh, you own it all, and I'm a money manager. How would I manage your stuff holy, in a holy way if I realized I'm your money manager at work? God, how would you want your principles of love and care that everyone matters to you? How would you want me to manage this decision, the people that are eternal beings that you've entrusted to me, who may not even believe in you? How would you want me to treat them in a way that shows unconditional love? It shows that they're valuable to the Most High God. Be holy in all of your conduct, on all subjects, at all times. And if you'll do that, not with some self-righteous standard that you, you, you mark the box as nobody else does. No, no. Coming from the grace of God, you pursue holiness in all your conduct by resting in the grace of Jesus who died for each one of us. And when you do that, I hope you'll find what I, what I began with, which instead of badgering people with the Bible, because we've all had friends who've been badgered by the Bible, people will instead be wooed by your lifestyle. They'll be attracted to this God and say, can you tell me what makes your life different? We may not agree on all the subjects, but there's something in the way you live your life that is so attractive. I want to be part of it. Tell me more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this challenging passage. Thank you for a reminder of uh, the ways in which culture has continued to struggle with the same things for the last six, ten thousand years, Father. And yet you continue to show a new way, a better way, to draw us into your presence and to um, call us to be distinct people, living sojourners, passing through, and drawing people to our God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here tonight.